then to invite, if I may, Rosemary Hollis to come to the platform to uh, address us on Balfour, the legacy. Uh, Thank she you. working at City University London. Before that, for a long time, was at Chatham House in charge of the Middle East program. Uh, always a difficult issue to uh, handle, uh, not least there. And um, she has run a very interesting, enterprising program at City University called, if I remember rightly, the Olive Tree Program, uh, which brings together Israelis and Palestinians, including Israeli and Palestinian students. Uh, to uh, try not merely to discuss these issues but to make some practical progress on them. Rosemary. Thank you very much indeed. I thought long and hard what I might be able to contribute to this occasion given that I was preceded by Jonathan Schneer and by Victor Katan, with all their enormous expertise, on the genesis of the Balfour Declaration and the significance of the Balfour Declaration. So I want to come at this in a way that might be considered slightly obliquely. Um, I wish to contribute to the discussion some insights I derive from research that I've undertaken on, firstly, the evolving British position on the Palestine question from the Balfour Declaration to today, and secondly, the role of the national narratives, this is research I'm doing, of the Israelis and Palestinians in sustaining and deepening the conflict over time. And actually, if I might be allowed a caveat to what Sir Adam said. Uh, the objective of the Olive Tree program during the eight years that I was director was education. We weren't so naive as to think we could come up with a solution. But we believed that the participants had much to learn about the drivers of the conflict and could best work out the power of those drivers, the power of the national narratives, which exist in parallel, they don't interact, uh, could best learn that through interaction with the enemy. So, I am sitting on eight years' worth of research involving Palestinians and Israelis in the power of their national narratives. But before that, I have done some research on the British. In fact, the British are a bit of an obsession in my research history. My intention here is to make the case that marking this centenary presents the British with more problems than it does either the Israelis or the Palestinians. And my message is, beware singling out a single episode in Britain's imperial history for celebration today. 
So, first, some reflections on British representations of the Palestine question, or which the British called for a long time the Palestine problem, over the years. The Balfour Declaration formed the basis for the British official position in Palestine, as we have heard just now, spelled out by Victor, it formed the basis of the British position in Palestine up until 1939, not beyond. Not least because it was written into the Palestine mandate, was it the basis of the British position. But even during that early period, the Balfour Declaration was not implemented to the letter and it was reframed in other official government pronouncements and papers during the mandate. In other words, Balfour was never the sole basis for British conduct and policy with respect to the Palestine question. Further, after 1948 the Balfour Declaration very much ceased to be the go-to document for understanding British policy on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And in fact, the way the Palestinian Arabs were portrayed in British official pronouncements between 1917 and 2017 progressed through at least six discernible phases which I'll enumerate in a minute. The way the Jewish Israelis featured in official pronouncements went through fewer changes. That's really the point I'm making. It's not the significance of each of the framings. The point is there was no consistency over the last hundred years to the way British officialdom has understood the Palestinians. During the mandate, the Jews were the Jewish community in Palestine inclusive of the Zionist leadership and new migrants. And then after 1948 and the declaration of the State of Israel, they were described and recognized simply as the Israelis in British official discourse, in the discourse of the political elite. And so the Israelis remained throughout the successive wars of Suez, 1967, 73, the occupation, the Lebanon war, and the recent Gaza wars. By contrast, over the same 100 years, the Palestinians have been variously depicted in British political discourse as natives, rebels and resistors, then refugees, the inhabitants of Jordan's West Bank and Egyptian-administered Gaza, a guerrilla organization, a popular resistance movement, a population under occupation, a minority population of Israel, a group of people denied their human rights and requiring humanitarian assistance, and a state in the making. Throughout, however, the British have essentially defined the Palestinians as a problem. 
And this has had implications for how Palestinian rights and entitlements have been discussed in international diplomacy, including at the United Nations. Even the call for a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, a call embraced by the British government since 2000, is not a call for Palestinian statehood per se. They are to have a state, but only provided the Israelis agree, and as a means to an end, that is, as a formula for resolving the problem for resolving the conflict, but not by implication, because that is their entitlement. To elaborate a little bit more on this contention of mine, that the British can't make up their minds about the Palestinians, or possibly they don't, they haven't ever considered it important enough to have a single position. During the First World War and its immediate aftermath, the Arab inhabitants of the land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea were accorded no national identity to distinguish them from the Arabs in the surrounding areas by the British. And, of course, the British imperial forces sought to capture the territory from the Ottoman Turks, not from the native Arabs. They acquired separate status, the Arabs between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean. Incidentally, when the Jordan River was designated as a border between Palestine and Transjordan, for which the British political leadership had different plans. As of July 1922, when Britain was confirmed as the mandatory authority in Palestine by the League of Nations until 1948, uh, and actually, let's revise that to 1939 because of the argument put by Victor. When the British terminated their rule, in any case, the Palestinian Arabs were depicted essentially, for that whole period, as rest of natives in a corner of the British Empire in which the British authorities were expected, under the terms of the mandate, to prepare the whole population inclusive of Jewish migrants, for independent statehood. Following the British departure and the first Arab-Israeli war of 1948, when upwards of two-thirds of the Arab population of Palestine became refugees, this became their primary status in British establishment discourse. These refugees were stateless, many of them crowded into refugee camps in the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, and across the river in Jordan, and in Lebanon and Syria. In effect, from 1948 to 1967, therefore, the Palestinians were primarily understood in British political elite discourse as a refugee problem. We've got one of those with Syria now, in very similar terms the Syrian refugee problem, now considered a European problem. Well, the Palestine question or the Palestinian problem was a refugee problem from 48 to 67. And a reminder of Britain's inability to deliver on its mandatory responsibilities in Palestine. 
and a cause for general Arab hostility to Western imperialism. The next discernible shift in the way the Palestinian issue was framed in British official statements occurred after the war of June 1967. When Israel captured the West Bank from Jordan, the Gaza Strip, along with the whole Sinai Peninsula from Egypt, and the Golan Heights from Syria. For the next two decades, the activities of the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO, including guerrilla raids into Israel, hijackings, a showdown with the authorities in Jordan, Black September, and their involvement in the Lebanese civil war, these activities of the PLO fed into a reframing of the Palestinians in Britain, or elite circles in Britain, as a nationalist guerrilla or terrorist movement comparable to and manifesting links with other revolutionary groups, such as the Irish Republican Army and the Army of National Liberation in Bolivia. The era of revolutions. When, if you were a student, you were very supportive, a British student, you were very supportive of all the revolutions, or most of them anyway. There was another change following the outbreak of the first Palestinian Intifada in December 1987. Then, television coverage of Palestinian youths and children throwing rocks at Israeli soldiers in the West Bank and Gaza grabbed public attention in Britain as other Western countries. The media led the way in portraying the Palestinians as a population in revolt against Israeli occupation. And they were referring to the West Bank and Gaza. And the refugee dimension of the problem receded in the face of resistance to occupation in the West Bank and Gaza. When King Hussein of Jordan, then disengaged from the West Bank, which was in 1988, it was no longer possible to depict the Palestinians as primarily a Jordanian responsibility. And the question of whether to deal directly with the PLO as the sole legitimate representative of the Palestinian people became more pressing for the British. It was an issue discussed in cabinet, in the foreign office with Margaret Thatcher. And I recommend to you the book, which is currently sitting on the floor underneath, um, Azriel Berman, I was reaching for the name, sitting, uh, yes, uh, about Margaret Thatcher and the Middle East, the Thatcher era and the Middle East. And it's very interesting to, see, to read about because Berman has gone carefully through the British archives as well as the Israeli archives and is able to document the number of conversations that Margaret Thatcher had with King Hussein of Jordan. She was very much in favour of uh, a solution for the Palestinian... Arabs of the West Bank that would come under the Jordanian umbrella. Uh, she was also an advocate and said so when she made an official visit to Israel of elections in the West Bank for the Palestinians. And when she thought that might undercut the PLO. And when Shimon Shamir suggested to her that 
the British and the Israelis shared similar problems, the British with the IRA and the Israelis with the Palestinians, Thatcher disabused him of any notion that there was equality in the problems because she said, in the case of the Irish, they have the option of going to the ballot box. In the case of the Palestinians, they do not. Anyway, as of 1988, when King Hussein of Jordan disengaged from the West Bank, that put paid to the hopes of Thatcher and others, not shared in Washington, by the way, that put paid to any hopes that Jordan could be part of the solution to the Palestine problem. They were led by the PLO, and that was understood and endorsed by all Arab leaders. That dilemma for the British, how to handle recognition of the PLO, was resolved with the Oslo Accords, in 1993, when the Israeli government formally recognized the PLO itself in return for its recognition of Israel. Since then, British officialdom has dealt with the PLO accordingly, but has withheld recognition of Palestinian statehood per se. For example, refusing to grant the Palestinian representative in London the status of ambassador, calling him instead the head of the Palestinian general delegation and more recently the head of the Palestinian mission. Some of you may have heard Hassan. Manuel Hassassian this morning the, uh, being introduced on the BBC as um, effectively the Palestinian ambassador. When the UN General Assembly voted to recognize Palestine as a non-member observer state in 2012, the British abstained. Since 2002, the formally stated British position, along with that of the quartet, has been to call for a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict with the caveat that this must be achieved through direct negotiation between the government of Israel and the PLO leadership. Meanwhile, also in keeping with the official position of the quartet, the British government has maintained that Hamas, which presides in the Gaza Strip, is a terrorist organization. So what's the significance of this history? Well, First, the changes in the way the Palestine problem has been portrayed in British discourse show that there has been no single or fully consistent British narrative on the Palestinians. Lots of framings, but no consistent narrative. Second, the shifts in the way the British political elite have depicted the Palestinians and their cause over the past 100 years, have coincided with major changes on the ground. And brought about, those changes brought about by violent conflict or war and or breakthroughs such as the Oslo Accords. The point I'm making here is not, it is 
A third point to add to what we heard from Jonathan Schneer earlier. So much was going on. So many parallel negotiations and plottings and schemings. So many setbacks and so many surprises in the context of the First World War that you could not argue that the Balfour Declaration was an inevitability. It could quite well not have happened. And as Jonathan said, it, is not, it was not set in stone. And as Victor said, it got effectively overturned or so compromised or so rethought that it could not be considered to have endured beyond 1939 or, let's say, 1949. I beg your pardon, 1947. And my point is that the shifts in the British position on the nature of the Palestinian problem are so far as I can see, almost all, if not definitely all, triggered by exogenous factors, by external factors, not by an internal rethink, by the British. Third, at no point, which fits with this, has the British government endorsed the rights of the Palestinians to independent sovereign statehood as a standalone objective. And fourth... British pragmatism, uh, something for which the British occasionally, uh, something which the British occasionally seem to claim with pride, pragmatism, and at other times um, it tempers their ability to say they always stand up for their values and the right thing. Uh, British pragmatism, their awareness of what is possible as opposed to what is right or ideal, has always tempered British references to international law and legality. Now, in a room with some international lawyers, uh, that's a pretty bold claim on my part, and I, of course, can't prove it across the board in entirety. But my <coughs> research of British policies on a number of different issues suggests to me that it's always tempered with pragmatism. And we could even go into Robin Cook's definition of um, there's going to be a moral dimension to British policy, not that it's going to always be moral as opposed to uh, practical, pragmatic. Uh, now, to my second theme. the national narratives of today's Israelis and Palestinians. And on the basis of this, I want to make a slightly different point. So it's not connected to the little foray that I've just made into British political discourse. I want to say something about how the Balfour Declaration features in the national narratives of today's Israelis and Palestinians. Now, I'm currently working on a book about the role of these narratives in driving the conflict. And for this purpose, I've been surveying Palestinians and Israelis in and from Israel, Gaza, and the West Bank to learn their views on the conflict, 
on themselves and on the other. Those surveyed were all aged in their 20s and 30s. The questions posed and the answers given were either in Arabic or Hebrew, mostly in writing, but also transcribed from a group discussion. None of those surveyed were officials, though most were in some form of employment or higher education. I am not presenting this as a survey which produces a representative sample of Israelis and Palestinians. I am producing this as an insight, the language used by these Israelis and Palestinians who are relatively privileged given their employment status, their professional status, their qualifications. I'm presenting this as a way, uh, an access point for understanding in what sense, if at all, the Balfour Declaration features in how they describe their national story. And I glean this from the answers I was given to the following two questions. Firstly, how far back, to what date or era, do we need to go to identify the origins of the conflict? And secondly, what are the origins of the conflict? Now, first, the Jewish-Israeli responses to the question, how far back, to what date or era do we need to go to identify the origins of the conflict? With a couple of exceptions, the respondents identified the origins as dating back to the late 19th or early 20th century, the foundation of the Zionist movement and the first or second Aliyah, Jewish migrations. Several depicted Jewish settlement of the land and Arab hostility to Jewish settlement as the source of the conflict. There were a few exceptions amongst those that I consulted to this depiction. For example, I heard from three Jewish Israelis uh, that the origins of the conflict should be dated back to biblical times, when, as one of them put it, the Jews arrived in the land of Israel after 40 years in the desert. Another respondent singled out the birth of Jesus as the starting point, uh, not quite as strange as you might think, and the supplanting of religion with nationalism by Europeans. Out of a total of over 20 Jewish-Israeli respondents, there was one who, depict, who specified the Balfour Declaration, and another the period of the British Mandate, as marking what they termed a turning point in the evolution of the conflict. But it's not the origin of the conflict, for any of them. In general, the respondents identified Jewish migrations, settlement of the land, and or a Zionist desire to change the character of the country, that's a quote, as significant. Most made reference to hostility from and clashes with the Arabs, whether in the 1920s or on the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948. One noted that the clashes of 1922 were the origin of a Palestinian national identity 
unvents a conflict between two identities. The respondent who dated the origins of the conflict back to biblical times noted the hostility of the Philistines to the Jewish arrival and described this as the origins of the Jews' realization of themselves, quote, as a people haunted by other people who want to kill them. In sum, the Jewish-Israeli respondents depicted their arrival in the historical land of Israel and the foundation of their state as being met with hostility from the others living there, simply put. Now, their response to the following, the follow-up question, what are the origins of the conflict? Two themes emerged here. The dominant one was the conflict derives from two competing national claims to the same land and holy sites, and or the emergence of two national movements. A refinement of this was the view that the Jewish national awakening preceded and prompted Palestinian national awakening. One respondent attributed non-Jewish hostility to competition for labouring jobs, The less dominant theme related to the origins of the conflict, the less dominant theme related the origins of the conflict, this is amongst Jewish Israeli respondents, to European anti Semitism and the Holocaust, leaving the Jews with no choice but Israel for their survival, forcing the Palestinians to, quote, pay the price, end quote, and creating, quote, a zero sum game. One respondent blamed the representation of European Aliyah Jews as a foreign element in the area. He blamed that, or she blamed that, on Arab nationalism. Another respondent saw the origins of the conflict in the UN partition plan and recognition of the Jewish claim to statehood, while yet another saw the 1967 war and Israeli occupation of the West Bank and Gaza Strip as the origins of the conflict today. The legitimacy of the Israeli-Jewish national claim was essentially unquestioned, though with varying levels of recognition that this is contested by others. In one case only, British colonialism was seen as instrumental. Now I'd like to make an observation at this point before going on to the Palestinian perspective, or some Palestinian perspectives. The young Jewish-Israeli respondents to this survey, today's generation of students and professionals, none of them ultra-Orthodox, by the way, had no need to refer to the Balfour Declaration to vindicate their claim to nationhood in the biblical land of Israel, nor to explain their quarrel with the Palestinians. Their explanation for the conflict is the competition between two nationalisms, two national movements for the same land. More on this in my conclusions. Now to the Palestinian responses to my questions. How far back to what date era do we need to go to identify the origins of the conflict? 
the Palestinian respondents voiced a number of perspectives. Surprisingly, several said that the Oslo Agreement was the starting point for the contemporary conflict. Because, quote, that was when the compromises started, end quote. And the situation deteriorated for the Palestinians. They blamed their own side for going along with Oslo. By contrast, however, a number of other respondents saw the end of the caliphate and partitioning of the Levant in World War I, Sykes-Picot and Balfour were mentioned, as marking the start of the conflict. These developments allowed, they explained, the entry of Jews and occupation and gave the land to those who didn't have the right and displaced the true owners of the land. One respondent did say that Jewish emigration predated Balfour, but that it was during the British mandate that they started to take our land. Others identified 1897 and the First Zionist Congress as the start of the conflict, and said that it progressed through various phases, including Balfour, the British Mandate, and the War of 1948. Uh, you will note that it is principally the Israelis who are celebrating Balfour, but the Israeli respondents mentioned Balfour once, in one case only. Uh, whereas Balfour comes up in the Palestinian discourse quite often, but in the context of imperialism. Yet another view was that 1948 and the Nakba started a chain of events compounded in 1967 with the Naksa. Intersecting the various other views, one respondent explained that the conflict had existed for a long time, but the wall and the settlements made it worse. Another elaborated on this with a list. Oppression, checkpoints, settlements and the apartheid wall, and concluded, every day the problems increase. Now the Palestinian responses to the follow-up question, what are the origins of the conflict? You will realize that they, as they went through the questions, weren't clear that the second one was very similar to the first one. How far back do we have to go? Then the second one, what are the origins of the conflict? Um, so there's some overlap in the responses. But Palestinian responses to this question of what are the origins can be roughly grouped under three themes. One of these was to characterize Palestine as a fertile land, rich in natural resources and religious holy sites, at the center of successive civilizations and geostrategically well-placed to command the region. As such it has become the target of enemies. Quote, not the Jews, but primarily the Zionists, and then global imperialism. It is an area of contestation. Another theme focuses on, quote, Jewish ambitions to control what to them is the promised land, according to their religion, to control that land and us, whose land it is, and which also matters to us in religious terms. 
The third theme depicts Palestine as the cockpit of a struggle between the West and the Arabs. Our conflict is with America more than it is with Israel, one said. Western motives are to control the oil and the region, and they created, quote, an imaginary enemy. They created an imaginary enemy, which eventually became a real enemy to the Arab and Muslim regions. Some respondents saw the West as creating both Israel and ISIS, I'm afraid, to stop the true Islam from ruling and flourishing. A fourth theme was World War II and the Holocaust. World War II with the Holocaust at its centre. These being the events which explained, as far as these Palestinians were concerned, the Jews' need for a country. Elaborating on the contemporary conflict, respondents talked about occupation, inequality and racism, oppression and apartheid, and a string of charges including forcing the Palestinians to leave their homes, colonization, killings, violence and deprivation of Palestinian rights. Elaborations on these charges included latter-day indiscriminate killing and shelling in the Gaza wars and an imbalance of power between the protagonists, plus revenge from both sides. Last but not least, one respondent ventured, in my opinion, Israel fears peace more because it will increase the social divisions and identity crisis in Israel. It will make the state the enemy of seculars, settlers, and the Russians, who live on the same land but have nothing in common except the land. You know, sometimes when you are fortunate enough to have these kinds of perspectives <coughs> voiced to you with passion and based on day-to-day experiences, you wonder what we're debating over here. You really do. I mean, it's so academic. The elephant in the room, by the way, is the occupation today. So, three observations at this point, and then my conclusions for discussion. First, insofar as the Balfour Declaration features in the Palestinian narrative, it is as one of many facets of the colonial carve-up of the Arab world at the end of World War I. Second, Palestinians today are preoccupied with the injustices and deprivations of the occupation of the West Bank, the blockade and bombardments of Gaza, and what they depict as the collusion of their own leadership and foreigners in the continuation of this situation. Third, the Palestinians share with their Israeli counterparts an understanding that there are two competing nationalisms with irreconcilable claims. Each regard their rights as preceding those of the others. Which brings me to my conclusions and some questions for discussion, which you may reject totally, by all means. The significance of the Balfour Declaration of 1917 is not as a legal document upon which to weigh the competing claims of Israelis and Palestinians. 
any more than we would consider Sykes-Picot as a legal basis for determining the claims of Iraqi Arabs, Syrian Arabs, and the Kurds. That's where I'm coming from. Whatever one's views about the past, the post-1967 occupation of the West Bank and Gaza is a very present-day concern. I think what I'm saying to you is that were it not for that occupation of the West Bank and Gaza since 1967 and the ways in which it has become ever more uh, oppressive to the Palestinians living in those places, were it not for that, we would be having a completely different and much more academic discussion of the Balfour Declaration today. And lastly, I wish to ask, and this is a question for me and the other Brits here, what are we doing, either celebrating or decrying the Balfour Declaration 100 years after it was written? Uh, and how does that address present-day concerns? Is it our obligation to relate our discussion today to present-day concerns, as opposed to who was right back then? There we are. Thank you very, very much for making the point about two competing nationalisms, because that would appear to be the key problem now that makes the issue fundamentally irreconcilable, in that neither nationalism currently seems prepared to accept a two-state solution in practice, given that the division of what was mandatory Palestine has now become impossible. And yet at the same time, it seems equally impossible that one single state can accommodate two such nationalisms. If this horrible thought is right, there is no solution other than further internal violence. Or do you think there is some way in which somehow this circle can be squared. Two responses. One is, by saying that the two competing nationalisms, uh, I do not equate the uh, positions of the Israelis and Palestinians today. One is occupying and the other is occupied. Um, so um, we don't want any false equalities here. And then in terms of if the issue is two competing nationalisms, I am struck by the fact that the Israelis that I've been working with and the Palestinians that I've been working with both understand nationalism as a European invention. And I think that we today, in Britain and in Europe, are struggling to understand what are the limits of national rights 
and how coterminous are they with pieces of territory? Um, I, you know, we've got the perfect example in the Catalonia issue. There's a fresh one coming up almost every month in terms of European identity and whether it was ever settled in 1945. Yes. Two things. First of all, isn't the group of people for whom the Balfour Declaration today is most relevant actually ourselves, the British? I think your presentation has actually brought that out, probably by, not necessarily intentionally, but it is a chapter in our history, but it is something that we ought to be looking at and getting a grip on and coming up with a thought-through attitude to it, not something trite like saying it is an anniversary to celebrate. My other question is, of course... There is one other big consequence of what we used to or perhaps still do call the Palestine problem. You've been dealing with the position between the Jordan and the Mediterranean. But is it not also true that it has been such a major destabilising factor throughout the area? There are many people in this room who know a lot about its history. And is it not also true that today it is one of the motivators of jihadi terrorism. And I am quite struck by, um, what was his name? The guy who was called Jihadi John. Uh, he, put a book, he wrote a booklet on encouraging people to come and live in the uh, new caliphate. And the front cover of it had a picture of the old city of Jerusalem being miraculously liberated by um, jeeps carrying ISIS followers while the Israeli Air Force was shot out of the skies, you know, pure fantasy stuff. But I think this is a an, an very, very important aspect of the legacy of, shall we say, our role in Palestine. And I think we ought to acknowledge it and look into it a bit more. And I also fear that there are a lot of people who hate this issue being raised. Okay, it was very much my intention to put the focus on the British. It usually is. Uh, it was not done unconsciously. But secondly, in, in the work that I do on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, I don't like the idea that it's some kind of esoteric, um, extraordinary phenomenon uh, to which we cannot relate if we're neither Arab nor Jewish, Israeli nor Palestinian, and, or indeed Muslim, for that matter, um, it, it has lots of lessons for all of us and the problems that uh, uh, the protagonists are dealing with are problems that uh, face all of us and increasingly so. I think we've, we've, we've come at the end of a golden era. Um, we didn't know it was golden at the time. Post-World War II um, and then definitely post-Cold War, and now reality is hitting big time, and we're back to all the isms and all the issues attached to those isms. And I would simply say on the business of whether the unresolved conflict is boosting uh, terrorism in the name of extreme Islam, uh, I think it's just an excuse. I think there's a lot of other things boosting that terrorism, and I'm also conscious that insofar as the Palestinians uh, are concerned, I don't think 
any I know want to be associated with that terrorism. Um, and it, I, I'm also conscious that I don't hear much about the Muslim Ummah would be the answer to their needs. Um, nationalism is still quite strong. I, they self-identify as Palestinian first, and then all sorts of other things beyond that. too um, abstract from the current situation. We're talking about two nationalisms here in a loose way, and uh, on the Israeli side we have the problem that they self-identify as a Jewish state, which immediately cuts off many of my Palestinian, uh, uh, Israeli Arab friends who don't feel that they have a place there. But you touched in your talk on, and I wondered if you could just elaborate a little further, on what we might call the origins of Palestinian nationalism. But what, where does that all begin? I don't see it in the Ottoman Empire and, and so on. And it, it, where do we begin to talk about a Palestinian sense of nationalism as opposed to either Arab or Jordanian or whatever it may be? Well, there's a book by Rashid Khalidi that addresses precisely that issue. So I would refer you to him. Second, where I'm coming from, I think all nationalisms constructed and it's in the eyes of the constructor when it started. I think if I may, I'm going to invite our other speakers, uh, Jonathan and Victor, to come up to the panel and we will take further questions with all four of us. Now you stay up here, Rosemary. Uh, I will, I'll just grab a hanky. <laughs> <laughs> If I may, uh, we could perhaps start with Jeremy Greenstock. Jeremy Greenstock, former British diplomat. Um, I just want to put in a comment or two, Adam, of what it has been like being a British rep official representative on this question in international discussion in reasonably recent eras. Because Basically, the Balfour Declaration hasn't come into it mm. in terms of the formation of British policy, which Rosemary is uh, reasonably fair in describing as usually pragmatic, because the British government is not normally in control of the events that it's dealing with and therefore needs to adjust to other things going on. So it's been very reactive. One of the big elephants in the room of this discussion that has not shown its face is, of course, the United States. And almost everything that's happened since the end of the mandate has been hugely influenced. And, and of course, before the, uh, before the Balfour Declaration as well, in the whole start of the Zionist movement. The position of the United States in supporting Israel and in not putting the same focus on the rights of the Palestinians has been a huge issue in delivering justice to both Jews and Arabs in the original territory of Palestine. And in the more recent past, including up to the present, the position of other Arabs than the Palestinians themselves has been a huge issue in that they haven't 
supported the Palestinians in forming the, the kind of constructive policy-making diplomacy that the Israelis have been so magnificent at. Uh, the Palestinians have been beaten into second place on the diplomatic playing field by the talent and ability and military power and diplomatic influence uh, and public opinion managing of the Israeli state and the Israeli cause. So to some extent in the jungle of interests out there which every government is trying to manage in an increasingly complex world, the Israelis have been better at managing their affairs than, on the whole, the Palestinians. Another, perhaps smaller but locally very significant elephant that hasn't come into it mm -hmm. is the fact that there are a number of Israelis, probably including the current Prime Minister, who have as an ambition the retaking of the whole territory of the original Palestine and leaving nothing for the Palestinians. Why we are commemorating the 100th anniversary of the Balfour Declaration in this country and probably no other, although some Arabs may be bringing it up this week, um, is that there is uh, a guilt in the British system that we never lived up to both sides of that declaration, even though it was replaced in policy making. And there is a guilt in not just the, the British psyche, but uh, many other uh, communities in Europe and to some extent in North America, that there is a living injustice uh, in modern geopolitics sitting at the heart of the Levant which has not been dealt with, with truly constructive and honest diplomacy over many decades. And it's that that has, uh, I think, made the memory of the Balfour Declaration quite relevant because we, we are still sitting on a failure to mend a great geopolitical injustice. Thank you very much. I think I detect that we can simply find a good deal of agreement on the panel. But couldn't Victor give a comment, because he's worked with the Palestinian Negotiating Authority, yes. on, on uh, I, one of the things I, I might have said at the end of my remarks uh, in, in response to the attitude of other Arabs to the Palestinians is... Uh, they're feeling even more hopeless at the moment about what other Arabs are prepared to do for them. And uh, one Arab ambassador said to me recently, we no longer mention 242 and 348. It's never mentioned anymore, which are the benchmarks for addressing the issue of the occupation. Um, so, uh, and I don't come across Palestinians thinking that other Arabs are going to be any help to them. But in terms of negotiations... Well, the, when I was working at the Negotiations Affairs Department, it was primarily with... It was a bilateral thing, Israelis, Palestinians. They were, I mean, the whole process excluded other Arab states um, to begin with. The, the Oslo process was not part of the Madrid process, which had several Arab, you know, Arabs as a bloc. It was a you know, secret agreement 
negotiated in, in the Norwegian countryside directly with the PLO, without the knowledge of the negotiators in Washington. It's a bilateral process between them, the PLO and, and, and Israel. So when I was there, there were lots of complaints that their Palestinian cause is not in the limelight, uh, you know, given all the problems in Syria and elsewhere. Um, they felt themselves boxed in and, and very weak. Um, I'd imagine that hasn't hasn't changed at all. Uh, okay, did you have a yes? So, yeah. This is the roundup, so it's quite a separate question. I hope you all will forward it from that. I suggest that for completeness, we should have one question on the second safeguard leg of the Balfour Declaration, namely the position of Jews in other countries. Uh, well, my frame question: To what extent? Should one, in thinking of Palestinian refugees, also think of the Jews expelled from most Arab countries? I think that's another question inviting assent from the panel. Okay, but rather than <laughs> saying nothing, uh, I, I was attending the panel discussion on the Balfour Declaration at Chatham House last week and was very taken with the distinguished professor of Hebrew and Jewish studies who, uh, whose response to a question along those lines, what about the Arab Jews, um, was fascinating, and I hope I'm going to do it justice. He basically said that before Zionism, before... European Jews caught this idea of nationalism, uh, the Jews living in the Arab world didn't see uh, religion-state relations in the same way as the nationalists tend to. Um, and then the audience got into a debate about who is a Jew. So, Hooky, you take us you take us into the most profoundly difficult territory. If if I may just yes, add two cents, um, my understanding is that that second part of the declaration was an attempt to um, mollify the sole Jewish member of the cabinet, Edwin Montague, and he was not thinking about Arab Jews. He was thinking that if uh, Palestine was to be recognized as a home for the Jewish people, that um, Jews in New York and London and Paris and so on would be told to go home. Um, and he said that Palestine would become the world's ghetto. There is a, it's made me think that that, that quote by, from Ormsby Gore on uh, 1937 where he said the Balfour Declaration must disappear. There's also, um, in the same speech, he actually speaks about um, uh, this issue of, um, you know, uh, Jews and Arabs once getting along very well in Andalusia, that's in the speech, and now the Balfour Declaration is causing this enmity. And that was 1937, so they recognized even at the time this was, this was, a, this was an issue. It's just got worse. Hi, uh, Roger Spooner. Um, 
There's been very little talk about Christianity. And um, I, I met a, a Lutheran pastor who said, when we were talking about the Balfour Declaration, he said the problems of the Palestinians didn't start in 1917, they started in 1840. And Anita Shapira, the very respected Zionist historian, says that it was the Protestants, and it was English Protestants in the 1840s, who, dis who developed the idea of Jews returning to Palestine and pass these ideas onto Jewish circles. And then you have Heckler in introducing Herzl to the British, the Restorationist chaplain of the British Embassy, introducing, introducing people like uh, the British political elite of Europe to um, Herzl being introduced to the political elite of Europe. So that, you know, you talk about, you talked about 1914, but I mean, Weizmann was meeting Balfour, Churchill in 1905 and Balfour in 1906. He'd already been introduced to these people. How was that? Was this through the context that came from Herzl? So I've just wondered about the... And it's the Christian Zionists who are celebrating the Balfour Declaration in the Albert Hall in a few days' time. Um, Weizmann met uh, Balfour and Churchill um, because he was a, a Zionist um, and um, some kind of a, a representative of Jewish people in Manchester when uh, Churchill was running for office um, and Churchill was simply uh, scouting for Jewish votes. Oh, I'm sorry. Maybe I misunderstood. I thought you were asking how Weizmann came into contact with Balfour and, yeah. and Churchill. And, and, the, and, and so that's, my, that's the answer. I think he's asking what role messianic Christians, right? What role messianic, messianic Christians? Christians? Yeah, but... but they have a measure. I mean, they yeah, have no, a measure no. Yes, well, yes. Uh, uh, power within the United States at the moment. Do you want to comment on that? <laughs> no. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but I don't think Christian Zionism had much to do with Weizmann meeting Churchill in 1905. Mm. Okay. Yes. Yes. <clears throat> yes, the I'm an archaeologist. I work on things many thousands of years before any of this, so excuse my naivety. Um, I've listened with great interest and, heard, and learned, learned such a lot and, and at the end feel extremely uh, sad and frustrated by the historic injustice that we're experiencing and sitting on and any thinking person you know, in this room will be feeling what on earth can one do. We are sitting in the British Academy, which is a research institution. I suppose I'd like the, to ask the panel that I suspect the solutions to this issue were going to be diplomatic, financial, um, you know, and in the realms of business, finance, politics, which we are, but we're researchers here. What aspects of research of this conflict are going to help 
where, would we, where should we best target? Since we're in a research institution, we're not in a political institution, and you can argue about whether researchers should be political, I probably believe that they should be, um, but if you can get where I'm coming from, if we are targeting things of research, where should we research? Because we've heard some research, which has been fascinating, where do we go with it? Where the, when the solutions, as have been pointed out by eminent diplomats, are actually all in, are in other spheres and beyond our control. I think I'd better take that one on. Um, <coughs> former president of this academy. Um, the academy as such isn't quite a research institution. Um, I, I, it did set up a few years ago a policy centre which produces a number of policy relevant papers. It produced some on the UK voting system, on uh, the nudge theory and many other policy relevant issues. Uh, and it has done some with uh, international relevance, such as a very interesting uh, study it did of soft power uh, and what that means and what are the illusions as well as the practical benefits that can flow from it. So we don't run away from these issues. I think there was a tradition in its early years of the Academy just not doing very much. Um, and uh, I have to tell you that um, in the years when Balfour was uh, uh, president of this Academy, uh, seven years in the 1920s, he, he didn't, uh, as far as I can see, uh, engage in any particular activity or encourage research within the Academy. Uh, I uh, tried to find correspondence before this meeting. I asked our archivist for evidence of correspondence um, about uh, any Middle East or any, any such matters. And there's really very little. Uh, so at that time, the Academy was, as it was described by its um, secretary, or to use the modern parlance, CEO, um, Mortimer Wheeler, he described itself as a very cosy senior common room with its windows firmly closed on the outside world. Uh, now, I, I think we have changed, but the main thing we do is simply um, supporting research by others or by, sometimes by fellows of the academy, uh, of which we do a great deal in the way of... Um, postdoctoral research fellowships uh, or um, later career research fellowships, uh, grants for particular purposes and schemes and so on. Uh, and there uh, we have done a good deal, uh, including some that's related to this issue. And um, I should also mention that we have an institution in Jerusalem the Kenyan Institute, which I have visited. It's in East Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, where, indeed, as with all British institutes overseas, they began with archaeological interests in the early years of the 20th century. And now they have a much broader range of interests. 
and do indeed engage in political and social uh, research of various kinds. So the answer is piecemeal. And uh, when you then pin me down with the question, what particular research would be uh, valuable in this area? Um, I have to say, if I'm to be honest, that I've, I've done research myself in this area. I've, I've written uh, about Palestinian universities. Uh, I've written uh, articles on the status of the West Bank and Gaza. I'm all in favour of trying to do honest, factual research, and as I say, I've done a little of it uh, myself. Um, but I have to say that, in general, I think that the essence of the problem we're dealing with in the land of the Balfour Declaration, frankly, in Palestine, um, is a problem of uh, two sides still uh, not understanding each other very well. And that's not because of a lack of research or information. It's because of some of the things we've heard about today, uh, including suspicions, which are still very deep, uh, and um, failure to conduct debate in a manner which recognises the seriousness of the other side. Uh, and I'll just give one example, which, which to some extent reflects on the way we've approached things today. Uh, the West Bank and Gaza occupations have rightly been referred to, but I think it is also necessary to recognise that when the Gaza occupation was at least partially ended or replaced, as some critics would put it, by a siege, but when, however you view it, and when Israeli settlements were removed from Gaza, uh, the result, after a period of time, was the use of, this, of Gaza uh, to, as a base for attacking Israel with rockets. And that's one of those phenomena that is quite hard for an outsider to understand. Not that the Palestinians should be angry with the Israelis, but that they may not have seen just how impossible it makes further negotiation or further ending of occupation if there's that nasty taste left in the mouth on that occasion. Uh, <coughs> I think also there's a need to understand that the Palestine Israel-Palestine issue is not unique. Um, in some ways, it's very typical of a post-colonial crisis, where what is difficult in the wake of European colonialism, and it's a strong argument against colonialism, what's difficult is finding legitimate forms of government, legitimate constitutional systems, legitimate borders, legitimate federative arrangements, legitimate acceptance of languages, what are to be the official languages of the territory. All these are inherently difficult questions. And Jeremy, I think, can vouch for the fact that in the UN era, almost all the <coughs> crises that have involved UN peacekeeping forces and a great majority of the crises that preoccupied the Security Council in your era were what we might call crises of the post-colonial state. Of, of these kinds of difficulty uh, and the way they uh, um, uh, result 
in civil wars, etc. So I think that there's a, um, an agenda there that needs to be looked at, which goes wider than the Palestinian agenda, uh, into understanding the, the pervasive and difficult nature of post-colonial conflicts, in which we certainly have a part, having created them, but which also we need to address and, and try and find solutions to. Sorry, I've rabbited on for too long. Any other comments on that question? Gentleman at the back there first. I myself am extremely nervous about applying the label of failed states, which I think is a term that is uh, used much too easily, and uh, even some euphemisms for it, and it, that term has almost as many euphemisms as lunatic asylums do. Um, uh, even euphemisms pose, pose a number of problems. So my, my, I'm nervous about generalising about that, that category, and I certainly don't think that... Uh, Syria and Iraq have identical problems, so it seemed to me to be rather different, but I defer to my colleagues. I did have one remark uh, referring to we wouldn't want to sort out the relative national rights of Kurds, Iraqi Arabs, and Syrian Arabs um, by reference to Sykes-Picot. 
So I think actually there's a genuine issue there on what basis are the borders of Syria and Iraq sacrosanct as they have stood between uh, 1918 and uh, up until today. Um, and uh, going back to the discussion, and I'm sorry, Sir Jeremy Greenstock would be the past master at discussing this. One of the reasons for the pragmatism that seems to fly in the face of either idealism or indeed um, what would be the correct and moral thing to do on any given occasion is how do you do it? And uh, my, my theory on why the British uh, have increasingly ducked um, voicing um, an individual opinion on Israel-Palestine is because the last thing they want to do is adopt a position that would require them to do anything about it. <laughs> uh, I think there's one, lots of people have their hands up. be a criminal court. So the ICJ would be seeking um, damages, so be possibly reparations to the state that brought the case against the UK. Um, uh, but one <coughs> could envisage a, a claims commission where that could be transferred to the Palestinians who lost lands or loved ones in the last months of British rule. But it's not, it's not a criminal court. No one would be, no one could be convicted of a crime or Anyway, everyone, no one's alive from that. Period. The nearest precedent would be the uh, case against South Africa yes, in the yeah, International yeah. Court of Justice over Namibia. Yes. But uh, this is very different because this re relates to what might seem to many ancient history rather than... Uh, yeah, but there's no, there's, yeah, there's no um, statute of limitations on bringing international claims. You've seen it in Nauru, phosphate mining, so it's possible. Uh, but yeah, the, the difficulty is finding a state that would have a claim and be willing yeah. to bring a case against the UK politically. The, you know, they would, they wouldn't probably be an interest. Yeah, excuse me for following up, but if we take other cases, for example, the uh, 1984 case uh, Nicaragua versus the United States of America, um, there were basically not much impact uh, from that case. So mm. that's what I was also referring to. Um, do you think... Well, it highlights, it, it can highlight and shame a state publicly and then you would go in, in the process of uh, bringing a case would be to articulate or to shed light on facts that probably were not so well known before. Um, so Nicaragua was the mining of the harbours and all these kind of things, support for the paramilitaries. And, um, in Congress it had an impact. Um, okay, There was supposed to be some money. There was a reparation. I think they've recently tried to bring that up again. Well, I think I must reluctantly draw things to a close because we are past uh, over our time. Uh, I'm sure we will draw many conclusions from this meeting. I hope uh, that none of them are uh, simple celebration 
or indeed simple condemnation. I think above all what this crisis needs, uh, the, the ongoing problem in West Bank and Gaza included, is, is uh, understanding. And one thought I take away from today is uh, that there's an extraordinary paradox at the heart of what we've been discussing to do with the Balfour Declaration, which is that it was precisely when Britain was most actively concerned to, to bury it uh, in, around 1939-40 and so on, uh, that actually uh, it, its aim was in some measure achieved. Um, thanks to the, uh, uh, what was described as the furious Israeli reaction. I've always thought that international relations is a subject where if a paradox can happen, it will happen. And I fear that's just one more uh, to add to the list. But I want to invite my colleagues to say if they have anything else they wish to add to what has already come up. Rosemary. No, I just appreciate the staying power of all of you. Say the same thing. Thank you. I'll make it unanimous. Thank you very much indeed. <clears throat>